are listening to Cambridge Science on Cambridge 105 Radio. Also available on your podcatcher of choice. Hello, I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. Welcome to episode three of Cambridge Science. They haven't stopped us yet. So I am joined by Dr. Andrew Holding. Hello, Dr. Andrew. Hello, Spanners. And we are science fans, enthusiastic science fans, talking all things science and stuff we've read on the news. And we are going to, we're going to go into our first kind of news-based segment this week, Andrew. So the last couple of weeks, first week we just said, I'm ill, let's talk about being ill. Second week, because you and I were talking about movies, we're like, do movie science. But this time it's hard-hitting research on the cusp of scientific discovery. So there are two ways in which we're doing that this week. Firstly, I'm really, really excited that we've had a fantastic response from the academic community in Cambridge. So we do have a lot of researchers lined up to talk to you about their work. So this week, we're going to end the show speaking to Amelia Ford, who is at the spearhead of researching blocking malaria transmission. And she is towards the end of her PhD. So I spoke to her yesterday, and I will, I will play you that interview in a little while. But me and Dr. Holding are going to talk about big things in space. I sent you a link, and yes. it was about the Milky Way, because I like space stuff. And I like asking you about space stuff. I know you're a, a biologist who's pretending to be... No, a chemist who's pretending to be a biologist at work. But don't worry, we won't tell them. We won't tell the university. But like you're super into space stuff. So let me ask you this. How is your general astronomy? I like the fact you were very careful. Very there, nearly make... said astrology. It happens a lot, doesn't it? My, I find it fascinating. Who doesn't find the universe fascinating? We live in this thing. We're on this tiny speck in it, and there's all this stuff going on around us. And it's fascinating. And those physicists and those people with telescopes, they work out really cool stuff. Yeah, it's honestly, it's, it's one of those things as well where I'm, you can ignore it day to day because it, it doesn't really affect your life that there's a mega structure of galaxies, you know, that there's an acrylian death cruiser, I have four galaxies over. That, that it doesn't, you can just ignore it and never think about the mass, uh, the mass of physics in the universe because it's a bit mind-blowing. Whenever you see those videos of, well, you are here and then it zooms out and it zooms out, it gets to a certain point where it gets to the known universe and you're not even a pixel. You're like, we've, you stopped being a pixel 17 zooms ago and you can feel a little bit irrelevant. And I don't want to feel irrelevant. I want to feel brilliant. You are relevant. I don't, what I relevant. find amazing about that whole thing, though, is from my perspective, what, what makes people so incredible is you're a bit of the universe who got the ability to turn around and go, it's kind of cool. You, you, you're like a bit of living universe that looks back at itself and can see it. And that is an amazing thing to have happened. Well, sometimes you can see it. So this article is about a, a discovery in, in the Milky Way about dust clouds. Yep. But you made me sad earlier when we were chatting. You said that you've never seen the Milky Way from Earth. Not never seen that beautiful. The thing I've seen in photos of that yeah. blue ribbon across the sky. And I, I, I went to Death Valley. And we were there, and we were going to watch it, and then the kids got tired, so I had to drive back to the oh, hotel. Oh, no! So you never got to see it? Yeah, and it takes a long time for sunset in deserts. That's the problem. So, so I've seen it a, a couple of times, um, and it's really surprising. Like, it is surprising, because you go there and you go, oh, that's why it's called the Milky Way, obviously. 
But the ancients, in medieval times, the Roman emperors would have gazed up at the sky and it would have been a permanent feature of the night sky. Whereas for us, it's just this such a rare thing. Like I, the first time I saw it is, yeah, the Outer Hebrides. And then on a very, very uh, remote place far, far away, where I was about 100 miles away from the nearest city. No, no, hundreds of miles away from the nearest city. And, and it was, I thought the Hebrides view was incredible. And then suddenly I, I went, oh my God. And I just sat there. I sat there on top of my vehicle for, for maybe an hour, just looking at it, just going, I can't believe we don't get to see this. Um, we've seen so many articles about light pollution, right? And yeah, the, the sky is full of stars. And if you live in a city, you don't see half of them. And it's amazing. And the Milky Way is, it's not a galaxy. It's a, it's a light reflecting of this massive dusk and all the other stuff going on. So it's all the reflected light of a galaxy. It looks beautiful in pictures. One day I very much hope to see it, but I have yet had the opportunity. But you wanted to ask about this research paper. Uh, okay, so it says, and this is from Harvard. It's from Science Daily is where we got the, the article from. And it's not, this is a... a, a publication you shared with me and it's not the most user-friendly which is why i have to sort of ask you do you understand it but it said a few years ago astronomers uncovered one of the greatest secrets in an enormous wave-shaped chain of gaseous clouds in our sun's backyard giving birth to clusters of stars along the spiral arm of the galaxy we call home and they've named this massive new structure the radcliffe wave uh, because it, it moves like it's oscillating through space and time, like a wave moving through a stadium full of fans, says the creative writing in the article. What What's going on with that? And is it actually as incredible as they're making it out? An incredible new unknown structure on our doorstep. I think it is incredible when you find something that big you haven't noticed on your doorstep, right? <laughs> yeah, why I mean, haven't we It's a very big doorstep. Um, but yeah, so they've... they've few years ago they detected this and what this article is is they saw me studying it and watching how the sun's other stars these forming stars in this gas cloud are wobbling and they've realized that they're going through what looks a bit like a mexican wave now it's not it's presumably not like massive movements compared to the size of a galaxy just because they're big distances but they can see the little wobble and that's um that's really what they found normal. and the other thing which i found quite interesting in that press release is they state they can do all this without having to include dark matter. And the reason I like that is whenever a physicist talks about space and goes, oh, and, and this this shows some dark matter, I always go, dark matter is that thing you just... When you add dark in front of something in physics, it means I don't know what's going on. It feels, yeah. like, it feels like it's the big mystery that they go, ah, dark matter. And if they really don't know what's going on, it's dark energy. So do we know, do we know what dark matter is? I mean, I'm sure if we found a dark matter expert, they could give a long answer. But whenever I've had those conversations, at the end of it, I go, basically, there's some numbers that drop out in the equation, and you don't know what they are yet. Another parallel universe that we can't interact with, but somehow has gravity. Oh, that's, yeah, I heard that. Gravity, the only because uh, uh, it's way weaker than it should be, isn't it? Gravity, and they can't explain it. So what if it's shared across magical parallel universes? So dark matter is this comes from this fact that if you model the universe creation you find there isn't enough gravity to make everything happen and form the galaxies and form everything as we are now there's a whole load of reasons that could happen we don't know the answer yet dark matter is a like a thing you put in the equation that explains it. and if you have that dark matter 
the thing starts to form galaxies. I get it. I get it. I think I get it. They have the maths of how they think everything works, but there's not enough stuff to, to make up the math side of the equation. So they just, they've just filled in the blanks and gone, well, that's some kind of mass we don't know, therefore that's dark matter. But then they've done other experiments where they predict that you would find something to suggest dark matter's there. And some of those experiments go, you know what, there, there might be something to it. So it's, it's still a lot of hand-waving, but they're onto something. There is something going on there, and it is really interesting. One of, I do remember years ago, one of the ideas was, is it matter in another universe interacting with Earth? And I'm pretty sure that's now not a big Aww. theory. But, you know, they do ask these questions. Various physicists get really excited and go, Ooh, could it be a parallel universe? Because they like their multiple universes. And uh, I think at the moment that isn't the leading theory. But it is a is a thing that they are trying to work out. Where is all this matter? And there's other questions. Like you've probably come across, we were talking about Star Trek the other week. Antimatter, right? In the Big Bang, a lot of the models we talk about, there should be an equal amount of matter and antimatter. When but, they collide, yeah. explode, lots of stuff happens. If that happened, you expect the universe to be equal amounts still now of antimatter and matter and all the energy that came from the explosion. But generally, everything we detect seems to be matter. So we have this asymmetry. And that's a big question as well. Like, why is everything matter, not antimatter? That conversation requires a stop, pause. <laughs> so let's, let's put that in our list because we have got a list of topics. I like the, the matter, antimatter stuff and the fact that it all annihilates because I'm pretty sure it was you that was telling me that basically there's, there should be a lot more matter in general, but obviously it would have collided and annihilated with all the other antimatter. So everything that's left is just the small imbalance that is the matter and everything else annihilated into energy. And you go, Phew, that's, that's lucky. That's all worked out then. Thank goodness it was slightly imbalanced. And we, and we don't really know why. Apart from that, we're here to witness it. And that is one of the other key things is people think, oh, isn't it lucky the universe is just right? for human life? And the answer is, well, if it wasn't, you wouldn't be standing here to look at it. That, that's that's just a key result of, for life to exist and observe it, it has yeah. to be able to support life. That's like a puddle thinking, oh, isn't it lucky that there's this exact hole that I as a puddle can fit in? Exactly. It... So tell me, this structure, okay, this is where I get fascinated with stellar nurseries, because my children were asking me about basically where molecules came from and something in the back of my head was hang on a minute we get complex molecules as stars become more and more complex so the first stars are just hydrogen they blow up that force squishes them together and has helium so then the next group of stars has some helium and helium and so on until you get what have we what are we up to on our solar system iron yeah, but so you're talking about atoms, not molecules. You're talking about the oh, elements. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, so elements. molecules are made from elements, and what you're talking about is the nuclear reactions, the fusion that pushes neutrons and protons together, builds up through the periodic table. Right, so these that, stars in this dust cloud here, this nursery, what's being made in those dust clouds? I mean, it depends how big they are, but if they're young early on, it's hydrogen going to helium. That, that's the beginnings. So are we about to get loads of new neighbours on our doorstep? It's all very slow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so if there's a dust cloud, it's not about to suddenly erupt into, um, into a bunch of stars. There's a, there's a very few things in astronomy that happen fast. And basically it's supernovas. And if a supernova happens really near you and really fast... You, You're not going to know. It's over. Mm. Well, you, and the thing is, it takes a long time to get to you, this fact that light takes years to travel. Uh, actually, it's one thing in space 
fact, people always overestimated how big the galaxy is. Funny enough, I was like, oh, it's going to take forever. Like some stars aren't that far away from us, but they're, they're two or three years away kind of thing. Did the article say where this cloud is? Because it's saying on our doorstep. An astronomical doorstep is a big doorstep, I'd argue. The fact that no one spotted it is, is not out your window. But were we it's made the... in a dust cloud like this? Yeah, so there would have been a dust cloud, and that would have collapsed, and that would have formed the solar system. Mm. And this is why the solar system's on a disk, right? All the planets are on the same disk of around the sun. And that happens because the dust cloud collapsed and spinning. Like when you spin like paint on a disk, whatever, it will sort of it will want to go flat. It doesn't want to go up and down. And that's why the planets form on that same plane. And that, that, that all comes from how that dust cloud forms. There's also a load of other things going on, which is sort of like, it's almost like resonance and music. The different planets form in that disk because how it collapses together and then they influence each other. So there's a whole load of maths and rules going on that mean planets form at different places. And it's not by chance where they form. It's because that planet can the dust can coalesce there without disrupting it somewhere else uh yes right i'm trying to i'm trying to follow this because obviously in in my head i'm looking at this massive dust cloud that they've just discovered so so that is going to be a future bunch of solar systems it's not just like one star if it's huge it's going to make millions of stars so presumably when we we got made when our solar system got made we would have been in a cluster like this so shouldn't we be surrounded by a bunch of other stars that collected other bits of gas right next to us? Yeah, they're, they're just right next is an interesting term when you're talking in space distances. Oh, that's disappointing. As I say, Alpha Centauri is only a few years away at the speed of light. It's not... People overestimate that kind of distance. Yeah, so this conversation we were having last week, you know, when you talk about Star Trek distances, uh, you know, to even start thinking about... Uh, was it Alpha Centauri? Yeah. Right, that's the very nearest star. I think Alpha Proxima is a bit closer, but... Okay, but we're sure. We've, we've really checked. What would you mean, we've really checked which one's the closest? Yeah, like how easy is it to know where all the stars are nearby? It's not like we've got a stardar, a, a radar for stars, is it? Well, you have telescopes, right? That's your radar is that for it? stars, but what... Is that we're what... basing everything on? Because I don't trust telescopes. So this whole thing of... like, Because you, you see this point of light, right? It, how can you tell how far away it is? There was p- plenty of things. So one of them is everything's moving in the galaxy. So things that are further away are shifting more because the galaxy's rotating. Uh, There's also, you've probably come across this red shift, blue shift. Have- yes. Okay. So if something's moving away, I was a radar guy. So I know, I know my Doppler. So if it's moving away, the light is basically effectively stretched. So it becomes redder. Yeah. If it's moving towards you, it's compressed. So it becomes bluer. Like an ambulance sound going... Yes, well done. Yeah, that's a 90s siren, though. <laughs> You've been practicing. Um, but yeah, so the universe, in its, its bizarre way, is everything is going away from everything else. And most people go like, but how can that work? But the best way I can make you imagine is if you get a balloon and you draw dots on the surface and you blow it up, that two-dimensional surface, which will represent our three-dimensional universe, all the dots, the gaps between them keep getting bigger as you blow up the balloon. And that's what's happening with the universe except in three dimensions, which is not something that's easy to imagine. But what that means is things further away from you are moving away from you faster because there's more between you. Got it. 
I'm still I'm still disappointed. Uh, you know, you see the headline, mega structure found near Earth. And I think that there this is where science communication is an issue. For me, I'm like, oh my goodness, that means there's like civilizations. I'm gonna go to a alien flea market and then go go on a side quest. But really what they're excited about is the movement of the dust and what that implies about its movement through the galaxy. So the fact that it's moving through space-time like a wave isn't that exciting to me as a muggle. Should should it be more exciting? I think learning more about our universe is just exciting. What I want people to understand that when it comes to science like this, you don't always know what the impact of that discovery is going to be till you do it. And that means something that seems totally trivial and you're going, well... Wow, it's stars, it's miles away. It might then have a big impact on something we do. It might help us in how we understand the generate energy. It might have, you know, these things are not predictable how science, where it's going to take us. And that's why just learning about stuff and learning about the world you live in is really, really important. It's, it will lead to impacts that we don't necessarily predict. Well, we're trying to learn here. We're trying to learn with Dr. Andrew Holding. I'm Spanners. Hi. And this is Cambridge 105 Radio. It's Cambridge Science. And if you've missed it so far, you can catch up by going to the Cambridge 105 website. Or you can find us on your podcatcher of choice by searching for Cambridge Science. And you can listen again. Uh, See, we're new to the station, Dr. Holding. So if we advise people to to listen again, we we have to suggest at a time of like, well, who should they... Who should be on? And they because they can't miss Michelle Davy on a Monday, can they? Did you know Michelle's on the station? I know Michelle's is. Uh, yeah, it's very good. It's a very fun show. I appeared on it two times. Obviously, those were the the best episodes. But yeah, I don't know the schedule well enough yet to say. Yeah, you should um, listen again. Well, Derek's on. Pff, Derek always talking about pie rolling. Pi- I didn't realize pie rolling was a big Cambridgeshire thing. It, yes, it's probably a northern thing. That's the sort of thing they like up north. They roll a big wheel of cheese. It's, tr- it's I mean, true. Cheese rolling's a, a proper legitimate thing. But here, we're talking about legitimate science stuff. You've just missed me if you've just tuned in. You've just missed me being slightly disappointed about the giant megastructure found in our galaxy that just seems like dust. I don't think I... I think I'm whelmed by the outcome of that story. Not your explanation. But this is, the, this is science communication all over, isn't it? They, and this is why... You need the headline from the Telegraph or whatever that says, giant megastructure may kill humanity. And then you read under the first paragraph is, it probably won't kill humanity, but there was some dust and it sort of waved around a bit. And we wanted to get you to read the article. So we had to say something. Yes, I, I, I think science communication, that's really important to be honest. I think you don't want the clickbait science communication. You want the thing to stand on its own for being interesting. You know, if I can't convince you the universe is exciting and interesting, well, maybe I can convince you something else is interesting. I, there's plenty of science. Well, you're going to have stuff for everyone. You're you're helping me because we're going to be talking to these researchers, and I'm also interested if we could speak to the people who'd done this work. Actually, speaking to them about how they gathered the data and why it's exciting to them is is really what I'm interested in when we're going to be speaking to these researchers. But I could take another tack 
and I could try to constantly sensationalise their work and have them defend that. But that is a mean thing to do. <laughs> I'm going to take your work, I'm going to completely misconstrue it and make you feel awkward on radio, and then don't do but that. But that's what people, that's how, that's how you get the clicks. You see, but no, we're not. We're not going to do that. Definitely not. You know, it's um, it's about the people and the and the work and their lives as much as the findings. And I think if you get away from this, is what hopefully what we'll do is we're circumventing the clickbait headline so that we can then actually get to the core of of why it's interesting. Uh, but this this got me going on the Milky Way in general, and I, and I sort of I don't like that the Milky Way is only one of a billion trillion galaxies. Like, like I said, it, it makes me feel not special at all. Um, but I was gonna, I'm going to ask you some, some Milky Way-related questions. How far away could like, another Earth be and us be completely unaware of it? Uh, it could be quite close, right? In... Yeah, because we we're useless at, at knowing what's going on. We got pretty good at, with some of the telescopes, some of the new telescopes, they can look at the dimming of stars as planets go in front of them. So actually... All the Kepler planets, they've been finding loads of these things now. So it could be, but the, the bigger the planet, the easier the dimmering is to see. So we haven't got to the point we found an Earth that we're going to travel to. And all the ones we are finding, we haven't got the technology to get to yet. But we are finding stuff. So we're at that point. And then the next step is trying to work out what elements and gases are in the atmosphere of those planets. If they're in the Goldilocks zone, that's a region we call the space that uh, sits right because it's not too hot and not too cold so uh, reality is we, we're getting quite good at being able to look across the galaxy and see stuff you've got to be able to see it you've got to be able to get the light from the star and you've got to be able to have the dimming you can see a little bit of wobbling too because the gravity of the planet wobbles the star i i find it absolutely amazing that we have the ability to do that now i don't think there's any other earths out there I think it's really? a, yeah, i think it's a fluke right so there's the fermi paradox isn't there where isn't that where they do the equation where they try yes. to figure out... But the thing is, they don't know the variables. So the Fermi equation has this big, long equation where if you knew how likely a uh, the chance of a, a planet not exploding early on in its life, you could then insert that into the equation. Right? But we don't yeah, actually so have guess that. guess on a guess on a guess on a yeah, guess. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. works quite well. Like The standard way of demonstrating this is you go, how many piano tuners are in New York? And you say, well, I know there's this many people living there. There's this many people with a piano. You can tune this many pianos a day, and you go through guess and you get an estimate. And, and the point is, if you do that kind of mathematical probabilities, you can get quite a good prediction of the number of piano, piano tuners in New York without actually knowing. The trouble with the Fermi situation you're talking yeah. about is you, you're doing a lot of stuff we don't really know the answer yet. But I would bring it back to aren't you saying, is there another Earth with life on it? Or is there another planet in a Goldilocks zone which is habitable, which could have life? It's the Drake equation. I led you astray there. Sorry. The Fermi, Fermi, paradox, pro the Fermi problem equation, yes. and the Drake equation, they, they go hand in hand. So, yeah, yeah, the Drake equations are the, yeah, the probabilities and the Fermi paradox is the fact that the Drake equation says there should be more people out there saying hi and they're, they're not there. Yeah. Where are they? Yeah. So I just I think that it's just way more unlikely than people think. So I, I'm, I'm up for saying, like, it's perfectly possible for another planet somewhere with humans on, you know, or, or sentient life on it. I just think people massively overestimate how likely it is. So it could be that the, the number of possible times it could have happened, say it's a million, but it's not, it's trillions. Say it's a million, 
but the actual chances of that leading to a civilization are actually a billion. So yes, it's possible, but it's just so unlikely. But it's still really, really cool if life evolves somewhere else in the universe. It doesn't have to be smart life. This is why we go to Mars and check if there's any bacteria, well, it wouldn't be bacteria, it would be Martian life growing on Mars. Is there bacteria probably can get around the universe, hitch your hiking ride. So maybe this is the idea of panspermia. Some of this life is able to travel to other solar systems. Maybe it came here that way. Like octopuses. It doesn't look like it, but it'll be a... We want to know the answer to these questions. So what we're really looking for is a planet that there is evidence that some kind of biological life is on there. So a really, really clear sign would be something like chlorophyll, something that's convert absorbing light in a way plants do. But plants aren't intelligent, right? Plants aren't giving you a chat, but they're still really cool that they exist. And if there's another planet with plants, we'd all be happy. Well, I would, I would say it would have to. And I'm okay. So look, what we've got here is hopeful scientist you going. There could be life everywhere. Could be fantastic. And me going, nah, it's probably not. So if you found life in the solar system, that's that's kind of one thing. But it could all still have the same origin, couldn't it? And I think that wouldn't prove anything. So if you found on Mars there was bacteria, but it was similar to our bacteria, that wouldn't prove anything. It could have just been flung up. Yeah, it, it could literally hitch a ride because rocks go back and forth between Mars and Earth all the time in terms of the timescales we're talking about. So it's entirely possible, but we might find something different. One of the really interesting things about life on Earth is that it's nearly all, in fact, all of it seems to come from one common ancestor. Yeah. It doesn't mean there wasn't other forms of life. It just means they there's no evidence that they were there. So everything pretty much is DNA-based. Everything is DNA-based life with the exception of things like viruses, which may be RNA, but they're kind of a, a bit of broken life that fell off the side, right? Right, they're yeah. They're parts of life. They're, they're not an organism in themselves. So this is the key thing. Like We're related to a banana. We, you know, We're like 53% related to a banana or, or whatever. That's the one that always blows kids' minds when you talk about everyone being related and you go, well, you know, you go back a thousand years and everybody's everyone's grandparent or great-great-great-grandchild. Yeah, you only have to go back a thousand years and we're all, you know, yeah, you pick someone a thousand years ago. Yeah. yeah, if you're like white in Britain and you find someone a thousand years ago in Britain or even Europe, you're related to, to all of them, isn't it? Well, and the incredible thing is, right, you go back far enough and if you'd lined up all your ancestors and you could walk back past them, you could walk the whole way past them and everyone would look related to the next person, but eventually you'll be back <laughs> at apes. Or a banana, eventually. Well, no, bananas are different trees. So you go back to eventually to some single cell thing, and then right. you go forward again to the banana down a different route. It's a different road. Okay, so where did we split off from a banana then? Oh, a long time oh, ago. Oh, come right, on. Right. You don't have this information to hand. What no, is the... I do not have on the top of my head the split between <laughs> what is the latest animal and bananas. So, But there will have been an organism, which is both our ancestor and a banana's ancestor. Yeah, and it's very early back because we talk about kingdoms of life, and plant cells have hugely different features to animal cells so at some point those branches merge okay and it's a long time ago because plants one of the classic things is they have cell walls right and we don't they've got these hard cells uh they've got chloroplasts instead of other things so yeah but there's also it gets complicated because sometimes you get genes transferring horizontally so this means things have evolved off and then bits of gene get pulled across into another species by viruses or other weird things that biology can do but it's all in the same club. So us, bananas, amoebas, squids, space octopuses, we're all in the same 
general bush uh, of life. We all have pretty much the same genetic code. Yeah. There are some differences at the fringes, but they're variations, right? They might be an extra page or whatever to make it into a book. But the fundamental DNA code is pretty much the same. Bacteria don't have a nucleus. The DNA just sort of flops around in the cell because bacteria are a bit simpler in that respect. Could be more, depending how you want to define it, they're more complicated in other respects. They're just a single cell. So, yeah, there is this idea of a last universal common ancestor. Yeah. And so there it, might be one, right? There might be, there's a bottleneck somewhere where there's one thing that everything that's alive now came from. So, but why didn't that happen more than once on Earth? Well, you're saying it might have done, but well, this is the done. only surviving one. I mean, the same thing happened with humanity, right? You'll you're regularly hear that there's very little genetic diversity in the human race. Compared to most other species, apes, whatever, we basically are an incredibly small pool of genetics. And then people say, oh, that means at some point in history, there was a really tiny number of humans that got whittled down. And, well, maybe. But equally, it could be there were lots of humans. And just one group of them, they, they their numbers increased when the other numbers went down. Right. So roughly stay static but everyone became from like it's one family just proliferating massively it's a bit more than that it's one town or one city but that doesn't mean there weren't other human or humanoids around it just means I should say hominids humanoids would be some sci-fi thing but it, so people like to talk about like, people like to leap to the idea that there wasn't very many of something but it's not something it just means that we don't have ancestors from all of them because the other ones went off for a wonder okay well, okay, in theory then, let's say that the, the the life had sparked twice on Earth and it had been separated enough that there was something with a different type of DNA completely. So there might be a, a version of Earth somewhere where two branches of life managed to spring forth. So like, could they exist? Could they coexist? Could they eat each other? If you have two completely different biologies, it is possible they would be incompatible, right? They would grow, but they wouldn't be able. The molecules wouldn't be able to interact. They'll be effectively totally different forms of life, despite having exactly the same chemistry, which would be amazing. And it could be just very early on that split happens, and that that's what divides them. That's what makes the two forms of life. But we these are all hypotheticals because they didn't and survive on I... Earth. It seems very early on it all went to one handedness, and the other handedness never really took off. Mm, okay, I just I just think it, it to me. It just feels like everything I hear that had to happen for me to be here talking to you over four and a half billion years, it just all seems really unlikely to me. Like the fact that the Earth formed at all, that it's a, about the right size to support life, that we didn't get crushed by Jupiter. Like when you think of the like literally billions of things that had to happen, I just I look around the universe and go, yeah, I know it's big, but like it just seems really unlikely that we're here. Let's put it another way. What you're saying is there's a lot of a lot of chance to make us us. Yeah. If you find life somewhere else in the universe, I suspect we cannot comprehend what that's going to be like. And my argument for that is an oak tree is a form of life. You don't get a conversation with an oak tree. It's made from the same genetic code on the same planet. Now think about that. The time scale, that doesn't mean it isn't life. So you go and find an alien life. It's going to be more alien to you than an oak tree. Or we could be the oak tree to the alien life. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm painting a sort of a pessimistic image because everyone wants to think that there's the universe teeming with life. That's the most exciting thing. I just think, in my dumb, dumb, confident opinion, I just think that 
this is a massive fluke. I mean, there's a lot of reasons we might not want to come across other life in the universe, right? We might want to give it a good birth. Yeah, they might seen, not love us. We've seen too many movies. They, yeah. they always well, seem like I a mean, threat. We don't always get along on this planet. So, I think if we meet an alien species, they will initially seem dominant and try and invade us. But through the pluckiness of our will and all uniting and maybe some fighter jets, I think we win in the end. I think Hollywood would agree with you. Uh, th- to beat the aliens, we would have to use 100% of our brains when right now we only use 10% of our brains. And that's the other thing I wanted to talk to you oh, about today. You're just trying to annoy me. Though. Yeah, so I'm going to finish off I'm going to finish off today by talking about uh, that because there's been like, a couple of movies based on this. One was um, Scarlett Johansson. So that, that one made me think it was true. That Scarlett Johansson one where she was getting more and more of her brain, she could use more and more of it. And then by the end, when she could use 100% of her brain, she could move things with her mind and like change the... I actually think that film's kind of stupid now I think about it. And then there's another one with the guy from The Hangover, you know, with the jaw. Silver, Bradley Cooper, where he took a drug and it unlocked the potential in his brain. So that's, that's how I know we only use 10% of our brains. I've forgotten. The, the guy who came up with this just basically plucked my number out of thin air to explain why some people are really good at chess or something. I, I've forgotten the history behind it, but it's a really annoying fact because you really do use all your brain. Like If you start removing bits of it, it's not good. You, you need your whole brain. You need all of it. <laughs> there was you a, need all of it. But you're going to ruin um, the classic line from The Wedding Crashes uh, when Owen Wilson said he was trying to um, caught a young lady and he said people say we only use 10% of our brains I think we only use 10% of our hearts and that was a great line but it's going to be ruined with your science yeah if you use 10% of your heart yeah, that's you're in trouble. quite a significant <laughs> cardiac issue and you should probably get a doctor to check what's going on it's it, probably not going to be pumping enough blood at that point. but for 15-20 years a good 15-20 years people would in the pub go do you know what it is a scientific fact that you only use 10% of your brain. But it's not true. And we know that. You can take an MRI. You can look at the brain. It all functions. There's similar things. You, you know the concept of junk DNA. Okay, so not really. But in your DNA, not all of it's useful. Like I'm, for years, people say, oh, X amount of your DNA, I've forgotten how much, it's bring 90-something percent, is junk. And the answer was, well, well, it's not. We just had no idea what that did. There's... Oh, I didn't. I didn't DNA know this. DNA that encodes for genes, oh, right. in the in which we kind of knew about, but the other DNA, there are some experiments where they found like a yeast and been able to delete huge chunks, and the yeast seems to be fine. But then, of course, it may be fine in lab conditions. As soon as you put it in the world, it might be something comes along and goes, "Well, if you cut that bit out of me, so I'm dead." Please don't delete um, any of my genes. I'm using them. Okay. But what you find out is there's a load of other ways for genome functions. We're talking a bit about epigenetics earlier, and these bits of DNA that were junk actually have a purpose. And they're actually really important by turning the right genes on and off and a whole load of processes we're still learning about. So, yeah, it's a nice idea, but actually quite often when people say this only X percent of this part of biology does something, it's because we've only found out about that bit. We don't know what the other bit's doing. And sometimes, yeah, with a bacteria or whatever, you can remove something from that bacterial organism's genome and it's fine in lab conditions. It might never be able to grow in a place it used to grow absolutely fine because you remove something essential for that adaptability. I've lost interest in gene editing since the other week when you told me. Because I always assumed when they were talking, oh, CRISPR, you can edit genes. I thought that meant that in me. The fact that it's it's too late for me and I've already 
you have to do it before you're born. I'm not interested now. That said, there was a paper out, don't know if you saw this, where they, so CAR-T therapy, this is used to treat cancer, program immune cells to wipe out cancer cells. And it's absolutely brilliant in certain cancers. Massive revolution. Someone in mice programmed to go after senescent cells. So these are cells that have gone, I've got on a bit, I'm going to stop dividing, I've done my thing. And it slowed ageing in those mice. And they said they could do that later. So train the immune system against the cells that aren't doing such a good job on you. Early days, but looks like they can make the mice... How long, how long, how much longer can we get? Well, I mean, you're not a mouse. Mice don't live very long at all, so... Okay. Well, I I said to you last week, I'm not greedy. I just, I want a thousand years. So a lot of this science and health stuff, I'm going to be in my head. The question's always going to be, how close can you get me to a thousand years? I, I think that one would probably get you an extra 50, but... Extra 50? I'll take yeah, that. I'll I mean, take that. But, as I say, early days, and you are not a mouse. <laughs> okay. And that's a key thing. Also, with all of these things that are... Uh, I, I remember about 10, 15 years ago, they'd said, they said, oh, the, the, the first person to live a thousand years is, has already been born because of the advances in, in tech. And like, I'm thinking then, I'm, oh, I'm already in my 30s. I'm going to have to really cling on here. And also, at my age now then, I also have to become incredibly wealthy to be on the forefront of that as well. Or someone in the secret science world like you, you tip me off when these things are being invented. There will be a wealth gap, right, to longevity. Rich people in the current world we're in, rich people will get there early. But that that argument with a thousand-year-old person has already been born is the idea that the technologies will sort of like, you don't need to be that tomorrow. If we get you another 50 years, you get another 50 years of biology. cling on it. I mean, you get a bit more, you get a bit more. And that was their argument. I'm sceptical of that, but I know people who really think we are going to see that level of acceleration. That'd be interesting. That's definitely an incentive to go on the old uh, old treadmill, isn't it? You've got to to hang on there. You've 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 got to be in it to win it, haven't you? So there we go. Interesting, very early day science, but really interesting science. Well, hopefully interesting science is what we do here on Cambridge Science on Cambridge 105 Radio. Go and follow Dr. Holding by searching for Andrew Holding on Twitter. Now then, I promised you real-life researchers at the cutting edge of science, and I shall deliver. So coming up now is the interview that I recorded yesterday with Amelia Ford from the University of Cambridge. Fancy. So, as promised here on Cambridge Science, we are talking to real scientists. And I, I know we have Dr. Holding, but he doesn't, he doesn't count. He's a familiar. What I've done is I've gone into the world of academia and I found people willing to bring science to you. And our very first lab rat is Amelia Ford doing a PhD in malaria transmission blocking. Uh, have I got all that right, Amelia? Yeah, all of that's correct. Yeah, so you are now, you're, you've, you've done your degree, which already proves you're one of the smartest people on the planet in one of the best institutions. And now you're furthering the, the whole field by going and doing something brand new that no one else has ever done. Well, that is the definition of a PhD, but I have been assured that we can further it a very small amount and still, you know, graduate. Isn't that a lot of pressure? You know, you're you're basically just starting in the world of science and then they say, okay, now perform science knowledge miracles for us. 
honestly, I feel that you'd get very different answers depending on when I was in my PhD. First year, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Now, very tired. Debating going off and becoming a baker somewhere. But... Um, <laughs> Please no. This sounds like important important work. So look, there's a lot of words here for me to to unpack. Um, but it's blocking the transmission in malaria. I think could you paint a picture for us? What's the the state of malaria in the world and the scope of the the problem? How much do you know about malaria? I mosquitoes and it's bad. Do you know what? That's actually pretty good. Um, malaria is. A disease that is in the public consciousness more, mainly because of things like uh, appeals, like Red Nose Day, Children in Need. Um, So the way the malaria works is you can't transmit it human to human. It's a vector-borne disease, which means that mosquito has to come, drink the infected blood of an individual and go off. And the next time it takes a blood meal, the next time it bites someone, the infected parasite will go into their bloodstream. And what does, what does that parasite do to the human body? Well, it's not good. To, to understand what the symptoms and sort of the pathology of malaria is, you really have to understand how it works, what the life cycle is. There's lots of different stages, but the important stage when it comes to illness is the asexual blood stage. What this means is it's basically replicating. If you think about, um, oh, strawberry plants, for example, you don't need female and male strawberry plants. You can just plant one. Runners will come out, they'll be able to divide themselves. So parasite, this malaria parasite, is somewhat similar in that it doesn't need a male or female to divide in the asexual stage. What happens is you'll get a parasite which will come and infect your red blood cell, your erythrocyte, and then it'll undergo division. It will divide itself over and over again. Um, Now, while it's in the red blood cell, it's going to be hidden somewhat from our immune system and... Uh, there are two types of um, immune responses in humans. And the important one here is the innate immune response. That means when you get um, something infected, you've got a little cut. It's a thing that makes you feel ill. It's a thing that gives you a cold. Or when you've got a cut, it's a thing that makes it like puffy and red, um, yeah. painful. So inside this red blood cell, it's hidden. But what it also wants to do is hide a bit more because uh, the innate immune system can also tell when the there's something wrong with red blood cells. So what we'll do is we'll form these little knobs, still inside the red blood cell, form these little knobs and attach itself to the various um, veins, the various bloods, what well, was usually veins because arteries are just, they've got too high a pressure. Super highway. Yeah. yeah. And they'll sequester themselves. And sometimes where they sequester themselves is in the brain. And this is the leading cause of death in malaria. It's because there'll be a lot of infected red blood cells which have sequestered themselves in a, in a vein in the vein, which means that blood can't get there and it leads to strokes. And that often leads to seizures, uh, learning disabilities and death. So this is incredibly serious. And so the fascinating thing with the blocking the transmission is that it's not like a cough and a cold that's in the air. In theory, because the vector, is that the word, is this living organism that you've got something to kind of uh, attack and fight back against. So, you know, nets. And I I saw things like making them infertile. Ozotec mosquitoes? Oh, I don't know that term. What is an Ozotec mosquito? Ozotec mosquito, uh, Ozotec, I think, is a company. But the way that it works is if you release a load of male mosquitoes into a population, 
around the time when they are going to mate with females and you make them sterile, then they'll pass down this, I can't remember what the gene is called, but it's a gene that basically makes them die. So in the lab, these male mosquitoes, they'll be given a substance, I think it might be tryptophan, I'm not certain, every single day, which means they don't die. But when they're in the wild, they won't have access to that. And um, since they don't have this this substance, they'll just they'll oh, die. Man. So from the mosquito's point of view, this is like a horror movie. Well, I, I'm very, I'm not nice to any mosquitoes I work fair, with. I fair, enough, fair enough, fair enough. So they'll pass down this killer gene to their, to their offspring, which means that there'll be a sharp decrease in mosquitoes in that region. And a females only mate once. So if their mating opportunity is taken up with this killer gene, it means that you're basically going to have fewer mosquitoes and fewer opportunities to transmit malaria that's, or any other mosquito-borne disease. I mean, that, that's that's crazy. So when we talk about transmission blocking, what what does that mean in in a gen? What's the general scope of transmission blocking? It includes things like like this, yeah, it like includes this. Things like this. So it's just stopping the mosquito itself from passing on disease from an infected human to a naive human, which a uh, naive human meaning that. They haven't got the disease, not that they're credulous. Right. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, so what's the specific bit then? Because I'm new to this world of PhDs and I'm just learning it from, from Dr. Andrew. So so you are taking, you know, some previous field of knowledge and now you're you're running with it. What what are you taking into the end zone for your PhD? What's your specific spearhead of science? Okay, so transmission blocking. We talked about the malaria life cycle a little earlier. We've talked about the asexual stage. Now we should need to shine a light slightly on the sexual stage. So you've got these asexual parasites in the blood. But honestly, this doesn't do the parasite much good because we're humans. If we get too sick, we're going to die. And then what they can't pass it on, can they? So you've got uh, sexual stages, gametocytes, which then differentiate. And these are taken up in the blood by a mosquito. Um, so we've got females and males. You can think of it kind of analogous to a sperm and an egg in humans. And this is the parasite that's... Yep, this is parasite. Yeah, yeah. And once they're in the mosquito, they'll, well, they'll be able to tell that they're no longer the human. And that's due to a sharp decrease in temperature. Um, the presence of xanthoranic acid, which is an acid only found in the mosquito midgut. So the females, they're going to kind of burst out, but they're going to stay where they are. But the males, that's the interesting bit because it's a very quick process. But what they'll do is they'll burst out of the red blood cell and undergoing three rounds of replication. So for one initial parasite, you'll end up with eight uh, males. And they do this then, in the mosquito? Yeah, they do in the mosquito. So it's in the actually, human, they're like chilling out, kind yeah. of having their life. And then as soon as they detect they're in a mosquito, they go party time. All right. Yeah, they do. It's time to uh, procreate so you've got your male you've got your female the male goes off and tries to attach and fuse to the female which then uh, fuse together and form an okinete which is the next stage and that is like the zygotes like the little embryo yeah um, which will then to round up become an oocyst and the cycle continues so where, where, where do you interrupt in this process then so what i'm doing my very niche area is I'm trying to characterize this one protein called PDI trans. It is expressed on the cell surface of the male gamete, which means it's a really good target to try and stop transmission. So there's several reasons for this. The first is often when we think about antimalarials, we want we have to take into account the fact that malaria, the malaria parasite, is inside the red blood cell. 
So it doesn't have to just be able to access the parasite, it has to get through the red blood cell first. Uh, the second reason is that in a Plasmodium falciparum, which is like one of the big human malarias, there were only sort of five or six oocysts, which were the parasite stages, which contributed to the entirety of the sparsite, which is the next parasite stage production. So that's kind of five or six um, parasites to target versus millions in the humans. One of the huge issues we've got at the moment is we have found many very successful antimalarials. However, because the parasite is so, uh, it, it replicates so much. It evolves? It, yeah, so you get resistance. But it's not. A, it's oh, kind of- so I see. So the, basically there's enough variation that there's, you'll get, by fluke, some of yeah. the parasites that can avoid the current yeah, methods. Yeah, exactly. And then you're only left with the ones that can avoid that because you, you kill the ones that, that you're targeting, but then there's enough, like a super bacteria yeah, 100%. In, in a hospital. Same, yeah. What, what are you saying about being bad oh, at science? I watch the news. I, I try. I try and keep up. But yeah, this this kind of you know thing that we have with the antibiotics as well. So you have yeah. the bacteria. The very few that survive then do very very well. So your method is ruining the party in the mosquito. Well, it's giving it less of a chance to get to that stage, basically, because of the fewer parasites. You're like the the adult that bursts into the party and says, hey, there better not be any funny business going on here. I'm the one sort of making sure that you only invite five friends over at once. Right. OK. Oh, OK. So you're just like reducing the odds that anything <laughs> there can yeah. happen. And because you're targeting a part of the parasite that is more common. So are you more likely it's then to be resistant? Less it's, it's less that it's more common. It's um, I'm targeting part of the parasite that's on the outside. It's not got the protection the red blood cell so it's much easier to target it either with drugs or with antibodies when i say antibodies i mean with potential vaccine targets okay so let me put this in the stupidest ways i can how how are you doing and if you do very well what impact will that have on the world scene well i personally am doing okay yeah i'm doing i'm doing i'm trying i'm trying really hard um so transition blocking is Really interesting, and it's been shown to work because if you look at bed nets, which is one of the most effective uh, ways of preventing the spread of malaria, bed nets is basically transmission blocking, but through a physical barrier, yeah, as opposed to um, what I'm doing, which is like more chemical, more biological. My supervisor published a study of ma- it was mathematically modeling what would happen if transmission, the transmission of malaria was blocked at various percentages in. A high transmission, medium transmission, or low transmission settings. And I think he's going, you see, if he listens to this, he will correct me, but. That's just one it, person, who cares? And he is my supervisor. Nice. Yeah, true. But it, it does show that a significant decrease in malaria will happen if with um, strategic transmission blocking. So it's like in Africa, there are high malaria transmission and low malaria transmission sort of periods. And that often corresponds to the wet season or the dry season because that's when the mosquitoes are around. So if you implement something like this uh, in a high transmission area or even a medium transmission area, it does show a significant decrease in cases. Now, how how easy is it to get from success where you are out into the real world? Because presumably you need business to be involved to see what you're doing and actually produce the things that are going to to deliver the results. 
Um, well, I'm at very early stage. I'm at what we call like sort of little pilot studies, sort of proof of concept, showing that it does work. And I didn't say this earlier, but it does work. We've done a knockout uh. mutant. So where we knock out pediatrans, which is the protein I'm characterizing, and there's like no fertilization afterwards. So, you know, it's a good target. I need to get that out here because this is my supervisor's target. He's like, yes, this is great. That, that, I mean, that sounds like real impressive. So like you're confident now that where you're going, you're heading in a direction, your your proof of concept seems to be there. So you're kind of confident going forward and happy that you go, I, I think I think this PhD, like what would happen if the proof of concept was wrong? Is that your PhD ruined? No, it means I write two chapters of I tried X, Y and Z, all of it failed, but these ways, it, different ways it failed. Oh. That's why I keep telling myself anyway. <laughs> so uh, from a, a life point of view, like this For seems sure. like quite a high pressure, high stress area of work. Is most of it lab work? I, I'm assuming you don't get yeah. to do a, an expedition out, out to where, you know, this is actually a real world problem. I was meant to, I think, um, when I was first talking with my supervisor, Andrew Balagwa, um, he was talking about potentially going out. So we've got collaborators in Burkina Faso who do work with human volunteers. Because uh, what I do is I work on mass malaria. I work on a model system because a lot of what I do in, requires uh, mosquitoes to drink infected blood. And people do get a bit iffy about me infecting people with human people with malaria, just mm. my experiments. I, I can see that would be mean. I, mm-hmm. I certainly don't volunteer. We, we do have some volunteers and we're very grateful for them. But For real? People go down and go, yep, hook me up. Surely you look them in the eyes and go, are you sure? See, I've never done this before because I started in COVID uh-huh. and everything was kind of shut down. So I might in the future, but so far I haven't had to have that awkward conversation. And this certainly hasn't been uh, an awkward conversation. Amelia Ford, I know you need to go back to curing malaria. I have been confused and I've been concentrating so hard uh, all the way through it. But I, I think I would absolutely love it if you could get back in touch and we'd love to have you, you jump back on and, and speak to us. Maybe an update when you've won the PhD. I've defended, defended, defended. my viva. Yeah, oh, that process. Do you, do you know what? If you're up for it, if I haven't yeah. offended you too much, I heard about this process of defending your PhD. Again, mm-hmm. and, and it's not peers, it's you know, academics in the fields yeah, and your yeah. supervisor and everything. The whole it's process... my supervisor. He's leaving me alone to defend myself against two other academics. Oh, no. But yeah, this, this process of, of defending your PhD is fascinating. And that might be something that I think people would find genuinely enlightening. Yeah, well, I'm very happy to talk about it. I haven't done it yet, evidently, but <laughs> I have heard horror stories. Yeah, they're the stories we want to hear. Amelia, go out there and uh, make humanity better. And thank you so much for your time. What a lovely chat with Amelia there. Go and follow Amelia on Twitter, if nothing else, just to let her know that you found hearing about her work interesting. So on Twitter, she is at a.ford. So at, and then the letter A-D-O-T Ford. So go and follow Amelia Ford there and make sure you catch up with Dr. Andrew Holding. He does a lot of nerdy stuff, you know, like plays games online and streams on Twitch. Superhero during the day, fighting the battle 
against cancer. But by night, he's a mild-mannered streamer. And I'm very grateful for his time. We have more researchers coming up next week as well. So there's some really interesting stuff in the tech world to talk about next week. And we are going to continue doggedly rambling about the things in the science world that we find interesting. So very grateful to Cambridge 105 Radio for thinking all of this is worth your time. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Cambridge Science.